This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Jerry Bowler received his Ph.D. from King's College in London and currently teaches at the University of Manitoba. He was the founding director of the Center for the Study of Christianity and Contemporary Culture at Calgary's Nazarene University College. While Dr. Bowler's research and writing interests range widely, he has written prolifically on Christmas, including The World Encyclopedia of Christmas and Santa Claus, a biography. His most recent book is Christmas in the Crosshairs, 2,000 Years of Denouncing and Defending the World's Most Celebrated Holiday. As the title of the book indicates, it's an invitation into a consideration of Christmas and its importance and its history. Dr. Bowler, welcome to Thinking in Public. Professor Bowler, the title of your book is, uh, well, it's an eye-catcher, Christmas in the Crosshairs, the subtitle, 2,000 Years of Denouncing and Defending the World's Most Celebrated Holiday. I have to tell you, that's a pretty provocative title. Why has Christmas been controversial from the start? Well, um, Christmas is enormously important. It is uh, central to the Christian message, uh, the notion of the incarnation of God becoming man, uh, is something that uh, is, is inescapable when we think of uh, the Christian message. And over the years, it's grown enormously as a uh, social and commercial event, uh, a political event in many cases. Uh, it's, it now has a global reach. Uh, so I guess it's not a surprise that there's been 2,000 years of argument about it. Well, I think it would be a surprise, frankly, to a lot of contemporary Christians, or perhaps even to, uh, to, to, to secularists among us, who, uh, who might know that Christmas is controversial now in terms of language like a, a war on Christmas and, uh, and, and other more contemporary issues. But I, I think there'd be a good many who would not understand what you document so well, and, and that is the origins of Christmas in, uh, in, in controversy throughout the Christian church and in the Christian history. Well, uh, the celebration of the Nativity got started with um, a decision, I think, by the early church that they weren't going to bother with uh, marking it. Uh, for the first century or so, I, I think the early church uh, ignored the Nativity, uh, choosing to concentrate on the imminence of the return of Christ. Uh, there wasn't much point in uh, talking about his earthly birth uh, if Jesus was going to return in glory. So it's not really until the second century and the rise of Christian Gnostics who asserted that uh, Jesus had not been present in an actual physical form, that it had been spiritual only, that uh, Christian thinkers realize they have to start uh, emphasizing Christ's bodily origins. And so they, they have to talk about the registration in Bethlehem, they have to talk about the cradle, and uh, even the swaddling clothes uh, become an article of, of faith. Um, so it's after about a hundred years, uh, Christians have decided to start thinking seriously about the nativity. And then the next question for them is when to market. Uh, and so we have perhaps another century of debate as to, um, when, um, the events in Bethlehem might've taken place. All kinds of dates are suggested. And then probably by the late 200s, uh, the church, at least in the West, has decided that December 25th is the date. So before we get to the date issue in itself, uh, I think it's really important to mark the fact that the early church put a primary emphasis upon celebrating the crucifixion and in particular the resurrection of Christ and uh, a a festival in the church uh, to mark the resurrection predates the festival that marks the incarnation. And of course, unlike with the uh, the Passover being tied to the resurrection, when it comes to the birth of Christ, there is no particular mark in the year that becomes automatic. And yet, as you say, at some point by the, the end of the second century, December the 25th has become associated with the celebration of the incarnation. Uh, tell us the story of how that happened. Well, the old... Um theory used to be that uh, December 25th was chosen because it was um, right in the midst of Roman uh, seasonal celebrations, uh, such as Saturnalia and Romalia, um, particularly the the calends of January or or the Roman New Year, and even a uh, a rather novel uh, invention in the 270s 
of a, an imperial holiday called the birthday of the unconquered sun. The theory was either that Christians uh, chose to go unnoticed in their celebrations um, or that Christians were hoping to co-opt um, the festivities and, and bend people's attention toward the nativity away from their, their pagan celebrations. That, that seemed an entirely reasonable um, notion. Uh, the problem is there's absolutely no proof for it. And it seems to go against all that the church stood for at the time. Uh, Christianity was unanimous in its repudiation of any kind of pagan festivity. So it seems unlikely that uh, December 25th was chosen as the date because of, of Roman holidays. Um, most historians now are leaning towards something they call the computation theory, um, which is, is based on a, on, on a couple of um, notions that we would find very strange uh, today. One is that uh, the birth and death of a great man occurs on the same day. So we know that Jesus was uh, crucified uh, sometime uh, in the early spring. Um, the church thought that March 25th was a reasonable date for that. And uh, if so, then that would correspond to um, perhaps the birth, but more likely the conception of Jesus. So if, if we place uh, the Annunciation uh, on March 25th, uh, then nine months later, hey presto, we have uh, the Nativity celebrated on December 25th. Uh, there's also calculations that others make about the service of um, Zechariah uh, in the temple, and thus the conception and birth of John the Baptist. So if uh, John the Baptist has a midsummer holiday, and he says of Jesus later, um, he must increase and I must decrease, People take that to be a reference to the various uh, solstices, uh, the, the summer solstice after which the sun uh, decreases, and the winter solstice uh, at which time Jesus was said to be born when the light increases. So we can just stipulate that the church really doesn't know when Jesus was born or when Jesus was con conceived in terms of a date on the calendar. But uh, there was nonetheless a concern for the historic uh, rootage of the Christian faith, the historicity of all the claims made concerning Christ. And there was the impulse towards a festival for the Incarnation. And as you write in your book, for whatever reason, the Church chose December 25 as the date on which to celebrate the Nativity. You say it was a momentous decision that would uh, will cause centuries of controversy and conflict. So, is that really a settled issue now? I mean, it's certainly a settled issue in the West, but is it is it a settled issue worldwide in terms of uh, of what we know as Christianity? Well, it took um, the Christian Church a couple hundred years to um, solidify December twenty fifth. Uh, the Eastern cities, um, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Antioch, had chosen on the basis of similar computations the date of January sixth, uh, which we now celebrate as Epiphany. Um, so it took the Roman Church uh, at least a hundred years to uh, get the eastern cities to come into line. And, and speaking of historicity, one of the pieces of evidence they used was uh, the claim that in Rome, uh, in the archives, they possessed a copy of the uh, tax registration of, of Joseph of uh, Nazareth in Bethlehem uh, on the date of December 25th. Um, Armenia, however, um, failed to come in line, and uh, Armenia, the, fir the first uh, country to go completely Christian, uh, still celebrates um, the Christmas on their January 6th. The, the problem with uh, choosing December 25th as the date is that it's right in the midst of these very popular midwinter festivals, and a lot of the um, pagan practices, uh, imagery, um, it tries to creep in naturally uh, to the Christian holiday. And, and so the church is going to spend hundreds and hundreds of years trying to keep out um, this kind of, of uh, syncretic influence. You call the early developers of Christmas the inventors, and uh, then you have to talk about the revivers. That implies that, that something happened for Christmas to fall into something, if not of disrepute, than at least of uh, perhaps uh, confusion and, uh, and misuse. Uh, what was the story of Christmas in the early church? 
in the early church, uh, Christmas develops um, certainly as a religious festival, um, the second most holy uh, on the calendar. Um, but inevitably, it um, as it spreads, it will become involved with the, the local customs, um, particularly as it spreads into Northern Europe. Um, being a midwinter festival, um, it's going to have associations with, with light and heat and with um, excess of food and drink and, and with greenery. And, and so we can see those things uh, creeping into the Christian celebration. Uh, Christmas really falls into disrepair in the 17th century after um, 100 years of attack from um, a variety of Protestants and its abolition in um, many places of a Calvinist persuasion. So uh, Scotland abolishes the uh, celebration of Christmas entirely. Um, the New England colonies that had been settled by Puritans um, made it against the law to celebrate Christmas. And in England itself, uh, the Puritan Revolution that uh, had abolished the monarchy uh, also abolished Christmas. And uh, it had to take the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 to bring Christmas back. But when it came back, it, it found itself rather discredited. It had uh, it had become a holiday of the uh, the lower classes and associated with outdoor revelry, um, a lot of drinking and, and male violence. In terms of the early church fathers, there were already warnings. Uh, uh, Chrysostom, uh, Augustine, uh, they were already warning against the association of this festival, the Incarnation, with revelry. And in the case of Augustine, uh, there, uh, the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, he, uh, he was very concerned about New Year celebrations becoming an opportunity for Christians to sin. Uh, and uh, he, he was quite clear that better not to celebrate than to, uh, to celebrate sinfully. He preached a number of, of very important um, sermons on December 25th, um, as did uh, Bishop Asterius in uh, what's now Turkey. Uh, I have in the book a quote from Bishop Asterius' uh, Christmas Day sermon in the year 400, in which he uh, makes complaints about Christmas Day, or, or uh, that, the celebration of that time of year, uh, that we could transfer to the 21st century and um, think we're quite uh, vivid. Um, the, the greed of children, the hypocrisy of, of giving presents, um, the, the concentration of wealth in places where it not, not ought uh, to go. Yes, he, he actually used language uh, in which he said, uh, give to the crippled beggar and not to the dissolute musician. Give to the widow instead of the harlot, instead of uh, to the woman of the street, to, uh, to her who is piously secluded. So uh, you, you can already see some patterns not so much of what might later be described as the commercialization of Christmas, but uh, a debauchery. And, and quite frankly, that was why so many Protestants rooted in the Reformation, and particularly in the Reformed tradition, uh, just thought uh, there's no way to separate uh, this kind of uh, a festival from, uh, well, well, sin and debauchery and associations with paganism. So I think many modern Americans or North Americans, hearing that there had been uh, – a censure against Christmas might not understand that what was being censored was in many ways not the Christmas that we know today, certainly not the Christian celebration of Christmas, but something that had been co-opted by the culture. Very much so, um, particularly the alcoholic part of the, of the culture. Um, Christmas came um, in the Middle Ages and early modern period um, during a time of enforced leisure. Uh, it was an agricultural uh, dead period. Uh, there were lots of unemployed and underemployed uh, men about. It was also a time when the wine harvest uh, was in, uh, the wine was ready, um, uh, the barley had been made into beer, and so um, there was a lot of alcohol and a lot of spare time to go with it. And um, that produced uh, some very unsavory uh, Christmas celebrations, both um, on the continent and in uh, the new American colonies where it was celebrated, uh, sort of New York, Pennsylvania, and places south. You make some very interesting points about the arrival on the scene of St. Nicholas as a major figure associated with Christmas, and uh, I, I've read so much about him. There's been some good historical work on, on Nicholas. 
and one of the points you make is that uh, he was the most powerful male saint on the calendar of the Christian church in the medieval centuries, and uh, thus a powerful symbol for Christmas. Very much so. Uh, uh, we've, we've kind of forgotten about St. Nicholas. Uh, he's been demoted uh, by the uh, the Catholic Church to an optional celebration, but um, it would be hard to uh, overestimate his power in the Middle Ages. Uh, right next to the Virgin Mary, uh, Nicholas was a miracle worker. He could fly. Uh, he, he could uh, raise people from the dead. He, he was um, given the power of bilocation. He could be in several places at once. Um, he was fierce for justice and also, uh, most importantly, for the celebration of Christmas, uh, a protector of children and young people and uh, a symbol of, of generosity. And the number of stories told about him lead him to become the patron saint of children and the first of all the magical Christmas nighttime gift bringers. You know, the whole cult of the saints uh, in the medieval church, the Catholic Church, plays so much into this, but I had not realized until your work that uh, when Nicholas becomes a part of Christmas, he was the patron saint of sailors, Vikings, Russians, Normans, barrel makers, thieves, perfumers, picklers, florists, haberdashers, and children. That's that's quite an assemblage there. Well, that, that's only a small sample of it. Um, Europe is full of uh, St. Nicholas churches. He, he was um, a, a leading uh, focus of, of devotion. And on his, his day, uh, his feast day, uh, December 6th, uh, it became the practice uh, probably around the 12th century for um, parents to put little treats in the shoes of children and to say that St. Nicholas had come in the night and delivered them. So out of that little custom comes an entire uh, industry of celebrating Christmas. We now see um, toy stores starting up to supply um, toys and dolls for kids. We have Nicholas Fairs in December that will um, uh, sell these things, sell uh, particularly cookies in the shape of of, uh, St. Nicholas, who was a a bishop. And so we have a kind of mitre-shaped cookie that's quite popular. And he reigns as this uh, preeminent magical gift bringer until the 1500s when the Protestant Reformation um, gives him the boot along with um, other saints uh, in in the, uh, the church calendar. Well, indeed, he got the boot, but you might say not for long. Nicholas has the last laugh in this on on the one hand by uh, by being back, uh, but however, being co-opted. Uh, there's quite a price for Nicholas coming back. In the, in the lands of Protestantism. That's an excellent point. Um, he is um, abolished in many countries, but parents still want the custom of an, a midnight gift bringer. So in many places, they replace St. Nicholas with the Christ child. Uh, in France, he's called Le Petit Jésus. In um, Germany, it's called Das Christkindl. Um, but the problem with the Christ child as a a gift bringer is that uh, he's not terribly frightening, and, and St. Nicholas had the wonderful knack of being able to thrash badly behaved kids, uh, nor can uh, the Christ child be uh, envisioned as carrying around big sacks of toys. So the Christ child tends to be given a, a scary, furry, um, dark helper who will frighten kids into good behavior and carry. Um, either a, a bucket or a basket to take bad kids away in or a, a sack of toys. And interestingly, many of the, the names for these characters are harkened back to Nicholas. So some of the scary creatures are called um, Rough Nicholas, Ruklaus, and very important for the celebration of Christmas in New York and Pennsylvania is um, Peltznickel, Nicholas in Furs. He's a character that uh, German settlers will take uh, to the United States uh, in the 1600s and 1700s. Something that came to me as I was reading your book was a connection. It's not explicitly made in your book, but I'd like to pick up at this point. Um, There's a lot of work that's been done, especially of parenting in the Western world, and of the use of fairy tales. Bruno Bettelheim, for instance, pointing out that uh, the deep forests of Germany produced these uh, fairy tales like the Brothers Grimm. 
and uh, that they were ways the parents taught their children difficult lessons of life by means of a story, whether it be Little Red Riding Hood or uh, or Hansel and Gretel, uh, about very real dangers, and uh, and these stories became ingrained. And uh, yeah, what what you make clear in your book is that in some ways the medieval world took off with Nicholas in much of the same direction. You make the statement that parenting is under the the best of circumstances uh, a, a difficult profession, and and that's that Saint Nicholas, uh, like so many other figures in in the day, uh, became an assist to, to parents because he could see whether children were naughty or nice. He would reward those who behaved, and he would punish those who misbehaved. That was uh, that was quite useful to parents. You argue. Yes, I think that's an indispensable part of it. Until the the, the 20th century, when um, parenting has taken on a much less uh, threatening tone, but uh, um, in many places um, he still has that uh, um, that aspect. Uh, parts of Europe still use him as that. But by then, um, he's been um, kind of uh, changed yet again. Um, he was taken to the New World by Dutch settlers uh, in, in what's now New York uh, in the form of uh, Sinterklaas, the, the Dutch term for uh, St. Nicholas. And uh, from these folk memories, a number of New York artists and poets uh, transformed him into the figure that they call Santa Claus. And in doing so, they, they stripped him of his, his bishop's uniform. They um, sort of de-denominationalized him. He's no longer a Catholic. He's no longer particularly Dutch. Um, he, he is made uh, much more uh, genial and uh, to some extent non-judgmental and uh, non-sectarian. And it's, it's that uh, transformed St. Nicholas uh, who conquers the world as Santa Claus. So millions and millions of Americans celebrate Christmas, and scores of American Christians are a part of that celebration, and most of them, including the Christians, don't recognize just how many controversies have been a part of Christmas in the past, and how worthwhile for consideration so many of those controversies turn out to be. It can be argued that many of today's controversies have deep, deep roots in the past, but it is also the case that our contemporary controversies make sense only in our contemporary context. The older controversies, however, are worthy of our consideration and a close look as well. You know, you make some very interesting points in your book about the Christmas that we know now. And in the English-speaking world, you really can't separate that from Victorian England and uh, the tales told by Charles Dickens, but also the example set by the royal family in Great Britain with uh, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert and their children uh, seen to be celebrating Christmas together and creating a new domestic center for Christianity as, uh, as a Christmas celebration. Exactly. Um, the notion of a, a midnight gift bringer had entirely disappeared from England, um, as far as I can tell, in the 1550s. But uh, Germany had its um, St. Nicholas in some parts and the Christ child in another. So when um, Queen Victoria marries her German prince, Prince Albert, um, he brings with him German Christmas customs. And among them, the notion of presents for children uh, under a Christmas tree. And there's a, an illustration from the 1840s uh, that printed in a, in a woman's magazine that uh, shows the royal family around a Christmas tree. Uh, this was reprinted in New York. Uh, they, the artists in New York took the crown off of Queen Victoria's head and, and took the uh, uh, the medals off of Prince Albert and made it look like a North American middle-class family. So uh, what we have is the creation of a domestic child-centered uh, indoor celebration that repudiated the rough outdoor alcohol-fueled um, festival that it had been for a while. I just found that really interesting, pointing to the role of the royal family during that time as uh, presenting the, the idyllic domestic life. And by the way, as I remember, you say that the uh, New York artists 
not only removed the, the crown from Queen Victoria's head and the medals from Prince Albert's chest, they also removed the mustache from his face. Evidently, that didn't fit the American Christmas either. Oh, yes. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's like Photoshop today, really a credit to their talent. I will tell you that the most interesting section of your book to me was about tyrants and Christmas, and uh, especially uh, looking to, uh, to, to tyrants, you might say, uh, new and old. But uh, I think that's a part of Christmas that, that many people simply would not know, and in particular, the communist tyrants who sought to uh, er- eradicate Christmas in the 20th century, uh, not altogether successfully. Well, by the 20th century, Christmas was simply too important to be ignored by tyrants. Uh, if you had become uh, the dictator of a country that celebrated Christmas, you were going to have to come to grips with it. You either tried to abolish it because it was a festival of someone to whom the people owed a higher allegiance than to you, and, and that's the uh, uh, method that the Bolsheviks um, in the Soviet Union tried. Uh, or uh, you could try and and co-opt it. You could bend it to your party's ideology. And that's what uh, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis tried in Germany. The Soviet Union um, in the 1920s attempted to be the world's first atheist country. And uh, they they began by uh, executing a a huge proportion of the country's uh, Orthodox clergy, They seized uh, all of the churches, uh, turned many of them into museums of atheism or into potato barns, um, allowed a tiny um, puppet Orthodox church, and they kept an eye on people who celebrated Christmas. Um, They eventually started an organization called the League of the Militant Godless, which were um, dedicated atheists who tried to um, inculcate um, secular rationalism and eradicate any kind of of religious belief. And of course, um, the celebration of religious holidays was a a prime target. If you could keep people uh, from celebrating Easter and Christmas, um, you were uh, uprooting a a lot of their faith. And so for uh, a good number of of decades, uh, the Soviet Union uh, really cracked down on the celebration of Christmas. One clever idea that Joseph Stalin had in the 1930s was to take the the need that people seem to have for a midwinter festival and transfer it from uh, Christmas to New Year's. And so uh, we have the the New Year boy uh, as a figure of the season and Grandfather Frost instead of of St. Nicholas. And and one of the points that historians have made about this is that uh, the the New Year festivity is always looking ahead. It's it's rooted uh, to the future. It's it's all about progress and change. Whereas Christmas always looks to the past. Um, It it looks back to the nativity. It looks back to family and cultural memories. And so um, you can see that the Soviet attitude of um, radical reform was much more suited to a New Year's holiday than it would be to a Christmas celebration. But even a totalitarian government is, is no match for Christmas, uh, not where Christianity had been a part of the culture and where Christmas had been a part of the, uh, of, of the, the community and the domestic life. I uh, was very interested. You go back uh, to uh, Fidel Castro, 1969 who uh, in Cuba banned Christmas celebrations and all public decorations. And uh, you cite one writer looking back saying, quote, of all the naughty words and phrases I remember from childhood, two stand out as being particularly taboo, Christmas and human rights, end quote. You know, I, uh, I find it difficult to believe those two are altogether separated in terms of that memory. It is interesting, isn't it? Um Christmas has now become legal. Uh, it's been legal since the um, the visit of uh, Pope John Paul II, but it's it's really discouraged um, by the government. Uh, they tend to allow it in in hotels and, and places where tourists are, but um, they're not uh, still not happy about the celebration uh, of Christmas. Um, early on uh, in the book, I mentioned that uh, artists try to portray. Uh, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara as two of the three wise men in street art. 
Oh, that wasn't very successful either. But I, I think most Americans, even thinking of Cuba now, uh, are unaware of the fact that there's a continuing repression of Christianity and a continuing repression of Christmas. But of all the uh, historical moments you, you recount in the book concerning the engagement of uh, dictators in Christmas, it's the Third Reich that I think uh, is the most chilling with, uh, with uh, again— a, uh, a dictator who very much recognized that the Christian truth claim would uh, would undermine his own claim to absolute and tyrannal, uh, tyrannical authority. And, uh, and, and so Christmas was a problem for Adolf Hitler. But like in so many other things, uh, he, he had a plan. He did. Um, the Nazi approach to Christmas is even darker than the Soviet approach because it wasn't just uh, an attempt to abolish Christmas. It was an attempt to make it, um, paganize it, to return it to its, um, uh, to an imagined uh, Teutonic past, uh, particularly led by the SS elite. Um, they tried to shift uh, the focus from December 25th to the winter solstice on December 21st. Um, the singing of uh, Christmas carols in schools was outlawed, um, no nativity scenes in schools, but uh, kids were taught uh, new Christmas carols um, with Nazi words. So uh, a new version of Silent Night uh, had uh, Adolf Hitler uh, watching in, in, in the darkness uh, over Germany. Um, the state was able to control uh, printing, uh, propaganda, the control of, of foodstuffs, one of the things that um, they took uh, care of was was to uh, monopolize um, candles. They, uh, during the war, um, they didn't want people putting candles on Christmas trees. They they wanted them uh, as part of a kind of national or a Nazi uh, death cult uh, that they were building um, around Christmas Eve. It was all very distasteful. Well, distasteful is, is certainly true, and, and worse than that, because it was a form of, of state-sponsored syncretism of the ancient uh, Teutonic myths that were of use to Hitler as he was trying to create the new German Volk and, uh, and a new myth concerning even himself. And uh, as you say in the book, there was no way to ignore Christmas, so they sought to co-opt it. But you also point to a push and pull that's going on, a tug-of-war during the Nazi years when the Christian churches were taking advantage of every vestige of Christmas in order to continue uh, some form of, of of Christianity, even under the Third Reich, and uh, and and thus you had the uh, the the apparatus of the Third Reich doing its very best to police any breakout of Christianity that might be connected to Orthodox Christianity. One of the things I found uh, very poignant was a um, a, a beautiful drawing done on the back of a military map uh, produced during the siege of Stalingrad as the Red Army was was tightening the noose around this uh, German invading army that was freezing to death. Um, One of the chaplains drew a picture of the Virgin Mary and Christ child on the back of a military map and had mottos like light, peace, love. And he took that from military unit to military unit um, to remind them uh, of Christmas. And it was um, uh, heartening for these troops. And it was uh, smuggled out on one of the last planes to leave Stalingrad. Um, When it returned to Berlin after the fall of Stalingrad, uh, the Nazi authorities refused to to put it on the on display as as being subversive of uh, what they were trying to do with Christmas. Now, fast-forwarding to your later chapters, you deal with more contemporary controversies concerning Christmas. And, uh, and, and frankly, as much as some of us try to watch these things, uh, you brought together a lot of material I had not seen before. And uh, so you, you've got a, a, a more aggressive secularism now that uh, also has to deal with Christmas. And, uh, and, and, and not in a, a, a very pretty encounter or collision. And uh, you point out the fact that, that they seem to be just absolutely intent on eradicating uh, Christmas because they're really not able to co-opt it. No, uh, they're not. 
Um, one of the things I point out in the book, uh, based on very recent surveys, is just how much a, a divide there is um, on so many issues um, between people who take religion seriously in the United States and, and people for whom uh, religion is not important. Uh, and there is a, a considerable uh, cadre of uh, atheists and secularists inside the government, inside unions and uh, corporations, school boards, that would like to drive religion from the public square, to absolutely allow it no public space at all. And if you're going to do that, then Christmas has to be tackled. It is that time of year when Christianity is not only at its most visible, but also at its most appealing. This is when the message of, of love and peace and forgiveness and reconciliation pour into society. So if you can privatize that, if you can drive it out of the schools, drive it out of the legislative buildings, back into the homes and churches, you will have done secularism a, a great favor. And so there, there's hundreds of battles fought every year uh, in airports and uh, schools and uh, you know out in front of a courthouse or a, a state capitol building over whether or not Christmas and thus Christianity is going to be allowed any public space. So you asked the question, is there a war on Christmas? And you, you say, well, obviously there is. And uh, there, there's abundant evidence for that. In the, the, the fact that many people who say there isn't a war on Christmas are the very people who are combatants in it. But I have a theory, my, my own theory, based upon my observation of Christmas and the very same patterns of secularization that, that you document in your book, and, and, and that's this. I think the main evidence of a, uh, of, of a privatization of Christmas or a, a forced kind of secularization of Christmas is not any kind of official edict or even a court decision, but it's the fact that so many Americans are intimidated by uh, by some of these uh, controversies that they are afraid that they just might violate statutory law, uh, some kind of criminal uh, act, or the Constitution of the United States by saying Merry Christmas. There's no law against it, but there is a, a, a cultural intimidation that's very clear now. I think that's true. Um, it's, it's become part of political correctness uh, for many, many people uh, to say Merry Christmas is to commit some kind of assault. Um, and uh, if, if, if I wish uh, people Merry Christmas, I can tell right away uh, when they very quickly say Happy Holidays that uh, I, I've transgressed some kind of unwritten law. Uh, it's not so much a fear of legal uh, processes, but of, of being uh, seen as uh, uh, old-fashioned and uh, uneducated in polite uh, morality. Oh, absolutely. And and you're a scholar in Canada writing uh, in, in many ways in this book specifically about the United States. And one of the things you draw attention to is the very mixed jurisprudence that has come from the United States Supreme Court. Uh, in many ways, the court trying to answer questions it's in incapable of answering for the larger culture. But uh, But one of the things that certainly comes to my mind is important for Christians to think about is that the allowable displays in the public space, certainly in governmental space, are allowable under a legal doctrine that basically declares them to be ceremonial deism. Uh, in other words, they're allowable if they don't mean anything. And uh, I, I'm concerned for Christians who don't understand that's what's happening. Yes, that's the infamous reindeer rule, uh, a, a Supreme Court decision that allowed a certain amount of uh, overt Christianity in the shape of a, a crash and nativity scene, as long as it was sufficiently diluted by the presence of Santa Clauses and candy canes and plastic reindeer. Um, jurisprudence on this subject has been utterly unpredictable, and that has made way for competing armies of lawyers at Christmas time. Um, all kinds of atheist groups, uh, the ACLU, are combated by uh, all kinds of, of uh, Christian uh, law firms that uh, engage in, in what's called lawfare uh, over uh, singing carols, even playing um, Ave Maria uh, instrumentally is, is deemed to be uh, too religious 
uh, a Christmas tree. And this leads to ludicrous things. One of the things you, you document in your book is, uh, I think, a California case in which the police were called because a high school choir was going to sing Christmas music, and there was a Jewish medal-winning Olympian figure skater, and someone thought it must violate the law for, uh, for this high school choir to sing Christmas carols. They called the police. They, they called the police and enormously embarrassed the Jewish figure skater because she was on what she called her Christmas tour. So... <laughs> Uh, as I say, it's it's not um, minorities that protest the presence of Christmas in the public space so much as it's this uh, army of what I call the, the umbrage industry, um, uh, diversity coordinators, um, sensitivity trainers, and, and people who are uh, so fearful of, of any kind of manifestation of religion that for them it's it's become uh, entirely a legal issue. You know, you make a really good point in your book when uh, when you uh, underline the fact that there are many people who are ready to cry theocracy if there's a Christmas tree in the public square, as if that's uh, supposed to be some kind of a statement of imposed theocratic government just to have a Christmas tree. Uh, I, I love that notion. Uh, of course, it, it's not a Christian symbol. Uh, it, it's associated with, with the mid, midwinter festivity end of things. Uh, my favorite story about that is the, um, the annual Christmas tree that the city of Halifax sends to the city of Boston. Um, in 1917, there was a huge uh, explosion uh, in Halifax that, that devastated the city, caused thousands of casualties. And the city of Boston was enormously generous in its response. And so for decades, um, Canadians have sent to Boston an enormous uh, Nova Scotia Christmas tree uh, as thanks. Somehow, um, this was ended up being labeled a holiday tree, which was enormously offensive uh, to the prime, premier of uh, Nova Scotia, um, who said uh, when it left Canada, it was a Christmas tree. And the uh, the guy who chopped it down said that he would have turned it into uh, toothpicks uh, if he'd known it was going to end up being called a holiday tree. Well, uh, long live Canada on that one. Uh, I, I'm, 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 I'm intrigued by another story. My favorite anecdote in your book along these lines comes from Port St. Lucie, Florida, where a school was going to present a, a, a musical by children entitled A Penguin Christmas, but it was deemed too religious. And uh, one of the complaints said, quote, any reference to, and, and this is legal language, any reference to a religious holiday has the potential to offend anyone who is not part of that particular persuasion. And then as you write, a gobsmacked parent complained, what do penguins have to do with the gospel? I don't even think penguins could survive in Nazareth. Uh, fair, fair statement. Um, I, I think I can go one better than that. And this was just a few days ago. The Texas Women's University um, issued an, an edict that suggested that the word holiday was offensive because the root of that word was holy. And holy means something religious. And so you should not say the word holiday in regard to any um, party that you might be thinking of having because it might offend someone um, of incredible sensitivity. So you could call what you were doing. You couldn't call it a, um, a Christmas party. You couldn't call it a holiday party. You, you were allowed to call it a semester ending or fiscal year ending party. No part of language that's safe from these people. Oh, absolutely. And the TCU advisory also said that uh, you should be very careful not to have cookies that are red or green because of the deep Christian content that is implied by red and green cookies. Uh, again, as a Christian theologian, I'll simply have yeah. to say I'll, I'm going to have to research a great deal to find out exactly uh, how uh, how particularly theological those colors are to be. I'm sure it was something in Leviticus uh, about the shape of cookies. You know, in terms of, uh, of of your treatment of Christmas, I think it's the richest historical documentation of the development of Christmas as a holiday and the controversies that have, have been a part of it. And uh, I think someone looking at the title of your book might say, well, you know, that's a rather cynical way to, uh, to address Christmas. But I, I think it was brilliant, actually, because it lays out the fact that whenever you are talking about 
a Christian celebration like either uh, that of the resurrection of Christ or the birth of Christ, you are asserting a truth claim. And I, I think one of the things for which I'm most thankful, and by the way, you deal in the book with all the commercialization and co-opting and commodification of Christmas, but the reality is the reason why so many people dislike Christmas on the secular side is because, just as you said, it is really still impossible to describe Christmas uh, without running the very real risk of having to talk about Jesus Christ and his incarnation. And uh, and that continues to shine through the centuries. That's true, and, and that's why you'll see um, in Europe and the Middle East uh, an increasing um, Muslim uncomfortableness uh, with with the celebration of Christmas. Um, in, in North America, as I said before, minorities really have no... Um, no objection to uh, the celebration of Christian religious festivals. Uh, the um, uh, the attacks tend to come from uh, you know government officials and so on. Uh, but in Europe, as their uh, Muslim minorities increase in size, a number of them have taken to um, organizing um, uh, demonstrations and so on, uh, partly to dissuade Muslims from adopting local customs such as the celebration of Christmas, but partly also as an attack on Christian truth claims. And so I mentioned some uh, episodes uh, in London that occurred recently, uh, becoming more and more common apparently in Turkey, um, which is the home of St. Nicholas. And and so they use that uh, as an excuse to attack Christmas. Professor Bowler, it's been a delight to talk with you. I I think your book is incredibly well done, very well timed. And not only do I thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public, I I want to wish you, your family, and uh, all a very Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. God bless you, sir. Thank you. So the sum and substance of this conversation is the fact that controversy over Christmas is not new and fundamentally probably isn't avoidable. And that's because the truth claims of Christianity are not avoidable in Christmas. That's why so many secularists rail against it, and that's why so many Christians celebrate Christmas without the slightest tinge of theological conscience, even as most biblically sensitive Christians will be very much concerned about some of what goes under the commodification of Christmas. And of course, there's ample ground for outrage if you're considering the misuse of Christmas. But one of the most fundamental affirmations of this kind of book is the fact that the continuation of Christmas is at least in part a testimony to the fact that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the Church of Christ. I think of this particularly in the most important or at least the most interesting portion of this book to me, which was the engagement of the dictators and totalitarians, especially the 20th century, with Christmas. And at the end of the day, let's just state it plainly, Christmas won. I really like the way Professor Jerry Bowler has outlined his history of Christmas and all the attendant controversies. He begins with the inventors and looks to the earliest centuries of the church, where the foundations of Christmas as a festival and celebration for the Christian church are to be found. There, too, were controversies, and some of those controversies were centrally about the person of Christ and the truth claims that are made very clear in Scripture concerning the circumstances, the facts of Christ's birth. And then are the revivers. They came along after a period of the marginalization of Christianity, and they largely explain why Christmas, in terms of the celebration we know today, is now so central to Western societies. Then he talks about the tyrants. There's that engagement between the dictators and Christianity that the dictators lost. Then he talks about the godly and the godless, taking us very much into the terrain of our own times, where there is a continual tug-of-war between secularists who increasingly have to deal with Christmas and are trying to marginalize it, if not to eradicate it, and Christians who are seeking to celebrate it. And, of course, there is also the commodification, the commercialization of Christmas. They come under the rubric of what Jerry Bowler calls the appropriators. And, of course, they were the appropriators because that's exactly what they did. They took Christmas and ran off with it, turning it into a massive consumerist experience, a bacchanalia of spending and gift-giving and celebration. 
Professor Bowler then talks about the discontented, that is, those who are very dissatisfied with Christmas, and that covers a great deal of territory, and then the privatizers, those especially now driven by a secularist impulse who are trying to make very clear that Christmas might be tolerated so long as you keep it in your house in your church and then shut up about it. As a Christian theologian, the most satisfying portion of this book is its affirmation of the fact that Christianity was rooted in the biblical impulse, the rightly honored gospel impulse of the Christian church to celebrate the historic truth of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, even going back to controversies over the date when the holiday was to be celebrated, affirming the conception of Jesus Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. In that sense, the history of Christmas is actually quite affirming to gospel-minded Christians who come to understand that at its core was the impulse to celebrate not only the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but His birth. Christians reading this account will also find, as I have said, ample ground for outrage because so many outrageous things are done for Christmas, in the name of Christmas, and against Christmas. I appreciate the fact that Professor Bowler doesn't act censoriously and certainly condescendingly toward those Christians throughout the ages who have seen the abuse and misuse of Christmas and have decided that it's just too high a price to pay, that eventually, once the church begins to sanction such a holiday, it then grows out of hand and becomes something essentially pagan. But Christians in our generation, understanding the fact that that is what we should expect a fallen world to do with anything, and certainly with the things most precious, there is that reassuring affirmation that wherever Christmas is mentioned, the name of Christ is mentioned also. And I really appreciated what Professor Bowler said early in this conversation. Christmas is that time of the year when, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, that story gets told, despite all efforts by a secular society to try to keep it from being told. So perhaps the greatest impulse that should come to us by reading this book is not just to respect the history of Christmas, but to seize it as an opportunity to tell the story of Christ, the story of His birth, but the whole story of Christ. And there could be no better way of ending a conversation about a book like this than expressing, most sincerely, Merry Christmas. Many thanks again to my guest, Professor Jerry Bowler, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.